You're listening to Preston's Poetry Podcast. Today I'd like to take a look at a very famous and often beloved poem. Some of you may have been waiting for it this whole time. I think it's an important one, one that has such a wide variety of interpretations. One of which I think is central to this podcast's mission to help people approach the arts, to keep poetry and literacy alive, and to share what I have learned to love about poetry. About poetics, this is a good example of narrative focus versus narrator meaning a good exercise in distinguishing two different concepts around narration. Now, the narrator is whoever is doing the speaking. The narrative focus, though, is who's doing the storytelling. Anyway, I'll get to that. The poem is Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. It was published in 1818, and it features a traveler telling a story of finding the remains of an ancient monument to Ramses II. Have a listen to see what I'm talking about with narrator versus narrative focus. Ozymandias by Percy Shelley I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, Half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and Bare the lone and level sands stretch far away. Although this work is usually published as one big chunk, it's actually a Petrarchan sonnet, a two-group sonnet that features an exposition and a volta, or a turn. The exposition takes place in the first eight lines. The speaker recounts meeting a traveler from an antique land. The use of antique here in place of ancient or old is interesting, as it gives us the feeling that the land is valuable but old, worn only more valuable by all the years. But anyway, the traveler then speaks for the rest of the poem. The inclusion of the quotes, though, tells us that whoever the original narrator is, they're actually telling us a memory of what a traveler said. The traveler, strictly speaking, is not the narrator. The narrator remains the same from beginning to end. Take a listen. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, 
So whoever that is, this is the narrator. Then there are quotes. Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, and that continues into the end. So whoever is speaking, the narrator, is remembering what the traveler said. So throughout the whole poem, the narrator is who is telling us the story. It's the same, but the narrative focus shifts from the narrator to the traveler. So this is what we might call a frame story, in which there's a story within a story. Think a story in which some wise old woman tells a parable. The parable is a story told within another story. So within this frame story, the traveler then becomes the narrator. But in the larger picture, the original I is still the narrator. But the narrative focus shifts to the traveler. See the difference? The story, the narrative, shifts centers. But who is strictly speaking does not. Anyway, the traveler goes on. He recounts seeing an ancient statue in the desert, now broken into large pieces, but that was once a colossal grand statue. There are two legs of stone still standing, but near those legs, fallen over into the sand, the face of the statue lies half sunk. On the face is a frown, a wrinkled lip, and the sneer of cold command. Whoever the statue was made to resemble is clearly in a position of great power. The traveler, upon seeing the face of the statue, then talks about the sculptor. The details on the face well those passions read, and that still remain visible on the face of the statue. With the lines, which yet survive, the hand that mocked him, the heart that fed, we may be tempted to think we're still talking about the statue, but we are not. We've shifted yet again to talk about the sculptor. The narrative center has shifted from the traveler to the statue, and with the lines tell that its sculptor has shifted again from the statue to the sculptor. First an eye, then a traveler, then the statue, and then the statue's sculptor. I know it's complicated, but please bear with me. We've zoomed in as far as this poem will go. So the details of the face in the statue were put there by the sculptor. The sculptor was motivated by the hand that mocked them, the heart that fed. That is, the sculptor was motivated by being ridiculed and micromanaged, but does so still passionately. It's as if we get this picture of an ancient Egyptian sculptor hammering away at this sandstone colossus and probably enslaved laborers jeering at him, the merchants laughing at the waste of time and money that they think such a statue is. Perhaps some court priests and politicians grumble about the temples and palaces, about how they think the pharaoh will not be happy, or how so-and-so doesn't deserve it, or how it's a waste of energy. Then, zooming back out to the statue, on the pedestal under the feet, it reads, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Stop. Technically, this is where the opening ends. In the next line, the volta or turn begins. 
So far, we've zoomed in on this story across time and space to a sculptor who creates a statue of and for Ozymandias, or Ramses II, which is dilapidated and fallen in the desert. But then it continues. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Volta, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Uh, Some guy. Sounds, Sounds very powerful. Probably commissioned by the pharaoh himself. A mighty ruler whose power stretches far and wide. Ruler of the world, almost. And yet, nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. Well, where is Ramses now? Uh, He's dead. And the statue of him is fallen and sinking into the sands. There are a lot of interpretations about this. Some think it's about the futility of power. Some think it's about the forces of nature always overcoming human action. But I think this puts way too much emphasis on the statue and on Ozymandias, who, admittedly, this poem is named for. Notice how there is no stanza division, though, even though we get to the turn. What should be the Volta reads like this. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. But the entire build-up to this was about the statue. Now, since there's no break before the Volta, there's no enter, there's no space, it just continues. If we look at the very center where we zoomed into, the narrative center zooms all the way into the sculptor, even the sculptor's heart. Ramses is gone. His empire is gone. Even his kingdom is a desert wasteland in this poem. But the work of the sculptor still remains. You can still see how he poured his heart out into the statue. This reminds me of what JFK said. Have a listen. Thus today, as always, art knows no national boundaries. Genius can speak in any tongue, and the entire world will hear it and listen. Behind the storm of daily conflict and crisis, the dramatic confrontations, the tumult of political struggle, the poet, the artist, the musician, continues the quiet work of centuries, building bridges of experience between peoples, reminding man of the universality of his feelings and desires and despairs, and reminding him that the forces that unite are deeper than those that divide. Thus art and the encouragement of art is political in the most profound sense, not as a weapon in the struggle, but as an instrument of understanding of the futility of struggle between those who share man's fate. Aeschylus and Plato are remembered today, long after the triumphs of imperial Athens are gone. Dante outlived the ambitions of 13th century Florence, 
Goethe stands serenely above the politics of Germany. And I am certain that after the dust of centuries has passed over our cities, we too will be remembered, not for victories or defeats in battle or in politics, but for our contribution to the human spirit. Those were the words of President John F. Kennedy at the close of a television broadcast at the U.S. National Cultural Center, now known as the Kennedy Center of the Performing Arts, in 1962. By my reading, Ozymandias is a good example of this idea, the idea that art will outlast us all, will outlast our whole civilization, because it is the expression of the human spirit. And Ozymandias, as a poem, does not directly say it. No, the poem is simpler and weirder than that. It's just a wrench in the machine. It's an image of the work of a sculptor. But if we zoom out even more, it's not even that. It's a poem by Percy Shelley. His poem from 1818 is as close to us now in its little mythology as ever. Have another listen. Ozymandias by Percy Shelley I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I think this poem, when we really look into the details, is about the good work of the artist. And this way, it is also a poem about poetry. If you want to try it, pick a person in history and take on their voice. Maybe they're in a painting, a speech recording, or something else. Write a poem about finding that artifact, that painting, that recording, as I have done here with JFK. Write what they said and comment on it. Ozymandias is a chance for us to reflect on the role of an artist. Even more personally, on our motives and our legacy. The sculptor's name we don't know anymore. The pharaoh Ozymandias lives only in history books. But the artist's work captures the human face, human skill, the human heart. And that lives on throughout the ages. The pen, or the chisel in this case, is mightier than the sword. While the statue decays very slowly, the story now continues 
in the writing down of the traveler's story. That lives on for a long while, yet Ozymandias' reign came to an end. His civilization has long since depleted, and the one after that, and a few more have fallen to siege too. So will ours. What do you think archaeologists will find at the turning of the page? Howdy y'all, Preston here. Thanks for tuning in. My favorite line of today's poem is, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Tell me and everybody else your favorite lines, or ask me stuff on Preston's Poetry Podcast Instagram or Facebook page, or via the website, Preston's Poetry Podcast.com. We'll see y'all.